quality information should just not be the preserve of the elite. We threw away one of the most important negotiating levers. There is no time to waste. The future is in your hands. Make it bright. This is Westpod with Jeffrey Sachs, Joseph Stiglitz, Ravi Campbell, and Tulian Kube and Petya Cuerva Brooks on Global Inequalities. Hello and welcome to the Westpod, the podcast developed and delivered by the Warwick Economic Summit team. This week, we will be hearing from a distinguished panel of speakers on the topic of global inequalities. The panel includes Joseph Stiglitz, who is a recipient of the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences, as well as the John Bates Clark Medal. Currently, Professor Stiglitz is a university professor at Columbia University. He has previously served as Senior Vice President of the World Bank and Chairman of the US President's Council of Economic Advisors. Ravi Kambor is the Co-Chair of the Food Economics Commission and Co-Chair of the Scientific Council of the International Panel on Social Progress. Previously, he was Director of the World Development Report at the World Bank and member of the OECD High-Level Expert Group on the Measurement of Economic Performance. The next panellist, Mtulian Kube, is the Finance Minister of Zimbabwe. Past Chief Economist and Vice President of the African Development Bank, Nkube is a member of the Global Agenda Council of the World Economic Forum on Poverty and Economic Development. Panellist Petya Kueva-Brooks, is the Deputy Director in the IMS Strategy, Policy and Review Department. Previously, she was in charge of the World Economic Studies Division in the IMS Research Department, which produces the World Economic Outlook. Finally, the panel will be opened with a live introductory message from Jeffrey Sachs, the President of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network and former Director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University, where he is University Professor. He is a commissioner of the UN Broadband Commission for Development and an SDG advocate for UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. The panel is chaired by Stephanie Flanders, who is the Senior Executive Editor for Economics and Head of Bloomberg Economics. Without further ado, here is the Global Inequalities Panel. Obviously, we are uh, in a complex uh, crisis uh, that uh, was uh, complex enough before COVID-19 and now has become uh, even more dramatic. If uh, one had uh, made a tour of uh, the world economy at the end of 2019 and asked, how are we doing on sustainable development and the SDGs, I think uh, the answer would have been uh, pretty poorly. Uh, the reason being that uh, despite having a shared global agenda of 17 sustainable development goals and the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, we also had Donald Trump. Uh, we had uh, nationalism uh, in many parts of the world. We had very weak multilateralism uh, and uh, the underlying market forces were not conducive either to uh, social inclusion nor to environmental sustainability. 
and nothing was very hopeful between 2015 when the SDGs and the Paris Agreement were signed and the end of 2019. Then came COVID uh, and uh, everything uh, has become uh, vastly more dire, of course, uh, starting with the, the loss of life uh, and the massive uh, illness and the fact that this virus continues to mutate uh, in, in dangerous ways. Uh, 2020 was also a very uh, bad year from the point of view of uh, any kind of multilateralism. Of course, we still had uh, Trump as president. He is psychopathic at an individual level, uh, and he was uh, leading a white nationalist uh, political movement uh, as well, which was opposed to multilateralism and was uh, pretty racist to the core. So 2020 was uh, absolutely uh, terrible, not only in terms of the disease burden, but a further breakdown of uh, global cooperation with the United States walking out of the World Health Organization at the, at the height of the pandemic. And uh, Pompeo, who was certainly the worst uh, Secretary of State uh, in modern American history, trying to stoke a cold war with, or, or worse, with China uh, in a kind of crude, uh, evangelical, uh, God knows what, uh, vision of, uh, of uh, American nationalism. So 2020 was botched in so many ways, but most importantly, in cooperating to contain the pandemic itself. The pandemic not only had profound economic ramifications, uh, but it also dramatically widened inequalities because uh, the online world, our world, uh, was able to continue uh, and in some ways uh, even to benefit hugely from this pandemic. Uh, as everybody has come to understand, the richest people in the world got vastly richer during uh, the past 12 months. Uh, best estimate is uh, that the richest 500 people in the world who had at the start of 2020 about uh, $6.1 trillion of wealth uh, experienced the capital gains of about one and a half trillion, probably more because I'm a week out of date and the stock market's gone up uh, to around 7.6 or 7.7 .7 trillion dollars. That's 500 people. So the digital world uh, is owned by those people. And uh, this has been a boom for the digital world. But half the world is not even on the internet. And in a world in which digital services suddenly became vital, life-saving, whether it was for government services or children in school or telemedicine uh, or monitoring the pandemic, suddenly uh, the world was even vastly more divided. Uh, and as Isabella said uh, a moment ago, uh, many of the other direct ramifications, the collapse of tourism, uh, the uh, collapse of uh, remittances to many countries meant uh, a further exacerbation of poverty. 
so 2019 was uh, already uh, flashing red in terms of uh, sustainable development. 2021 uh, exacerbated uh, every uh, degree of crisis. And here, uh, 2020, and here we are. Uh, what are we going to do? And how are we going to move forward? So there's one overwhelming part of good news. And that is where I would start, which is that the digital technologies and the green technologies are potentially amazing for solving problems both about poverty and uh, about uh, environmental destruction. Uh, on the green side of the ledger, uh, the falling costs of renewable energy are astounding. The uh, ability to build a very, very large scale zero carbon uh, energy plants with low cost storage uh, is a, a dramatic advance. The sharp fall of costs of offshore wind is, is another huge advance. On many, many technological fronts, we now have a clear shot at uh, decarbonization of the world economy at very low financial cost and, of course, at profound uh, human and environmental benefits. That's good news. The second piece of good news is that digital technologies, while they are not the friends of equality right now because of a world that is uh, fundamentally divided between the digital haves and the digital have-nots, is a technology that can make a huge, huge difference in narrowing access to essential services. You really can do a lot of education online. Uh, you can do a lot of telemedicine online. You can provide a lot of government services online. You can do banking uh, and financing online. Uh, and of course, uh, the rich world's been doing that during the past 12 months and did it with uh, great success. You can create jobs across international borders pretty much effortlessly online because we don't go to the, our office anymore. Uh, and while someday we'll go back to the office, we'll never go back to the office nine to five and the ability to have new jobs created in developing countries that are global jobs has opened up in brand new ways, a real potential boost for development. So in my view, what we essentially face at its very core is the question of intentionality. That is a world community that acts consciously uh, with planning and foresight uh, and structures to achieve the goals that we've set and with uh, a realistic financing model so that we can understand how to scale up rapidly and to overcome the digital divide or to scale up dramatically for electrification for uh, the billions of people that do not have access to reliable modern energy services. And if we put together intentionality, plans and financing, we actually could make 
a, a profound breakthrough. So that's the reason for optimism. The reason for pessimism is uh, we still seem to be human beings uh, with uh, every foible, weakness, short-termism, uh, inability to focus, and political structures that are profoundly deficient in many parts of the world, including we saw very vividly in the UK, in the United States, uh, in the European Union, uh, where we weren't rational enough to save ourselves, much less to engage with the rest of the world. I've not said much about markets uh, as the solution to this, because I don't believe that uh, we're going to achieve these goals, mainly by letting things move forward on a for-profit market basis alone. Uh, while certain things come out of markets quite well, the fact that half the world is on internet, wireless or uh, fixed uh, cable and wire is a great achievement of the market economy. The fact that the other half is not online is a demonstration of the weaknesses of the market economy. By itself, the market economy does not achieve inclusion. Uh, it achieves some innovation, it achieves breakthroughs, it can make the world more comfortable for rich people, but it cannot make inclusion, nor does it provide for environmental sustainability on its own. Uh, environmental sustainability is a quintessential set of public goods that requires coherent and cohesive public actions, not just a corrective Pigouvian tax on carbon, a lot more than that to build the new infrastructure for a green economy, to set sharp limits on land use, to protect half the world in order to protect all of biodiversity and so forth. That requires a tremendous amount of governance at the national level, the regional level and the global level. So that's the area of concern and design for me. How do we make these systems work? How do we overcome the Trumps of the world, the America first poison, uh, the nationalism poison, which has poisoned our world on many occasions in devastating ways in the last century? Uh, how do we make effective regional cooperation? And how do we make effective global cooperation? And I'll just, uh, and uh, quickly on these points uh, from a uh, national perspective, every nation should know it cannot solve its problems other than by cooperating with the neighboring countries, period. Because every country requires uh, cooperation on uh, renewable energy, on managing ecosystems and so forth. There may be some uh, remote small island developing states uh, which have a different problem, but I'm talking uh, mostly uh, about, uh, uh, or I'm talking about most of the world, the United States, which needs Canada and Mexico 
in order to have a renewable energy system. I'm talking about Europe. I'm talking about the UK, despite its recent fantasies about going it alone, uh, and uh, other parts of the world. Look to your neighbors and cooperate. And of course, uh, think quickly about all the parts of the world where that's not the case, where Pakistan and India don't cooperate, where India and China don't cooperate, where China, Japan, and Korea have a very hard time cooperating and so forth. Many of where Iran and Saudi Arabia don't cooperate. Uh, many of these local battles go back a long time, but they're stoked by outside powers, which is especially pernicious. So first we need cooperation within broad regions. Second, we need global cooperation according to multilateral standards and equal justice. And uh, we need to put away quickly the uh, anti-China sentiments which rose sharply in the United States in recent years, which are a reflection of uh, American arrogance and hubris, really deeply steeped in our uh, traditions of uh, uh, a search for dominance, uh, and understand that cooperating with China and the US and EU, cooperating across regions, European Union, African Union, uh, North America, the new uh, regional comprehensive economic partnership in the Asia Pacific and so forth is absolutely essential. Remember that this year we have many global summits coming up. We have a World Food System Summit at the UN in September. Uh, we have the COP15 of the Convention on Biological Diversity to at the last moment try to save the biodiversity of the planet being hosted by China in Kunming in October. We have COP26 to get all nations committed to decarbonization by mid-century taking place in Glasgow uh, at the beginning of November, 2021. We've got an agenda cut out for us. We also have uh, the day-to-day -day agenda of finally having a rational approach to this pandemic. And most importantly, we need a globally cooperative approach, both to contain the spread of the virus, which we have not had to this day, and to ensure the scaling up and inclusive distribution of vaccines, where we have an organization, COVAX, but it doesn't have the funds. So we need to come up with the financing, the strategies and the global cooperation to make this happen. And I see I'm at the end of my time, but I will just add one uh, more thought for your consideration. If we scale up the capacity of the multilateral financial institutions, like the EIB, the EBRD, uh, the African Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Islamic Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, by paying in a little bit of capital, we can multiply roughly by a factor of 50 or so the capacity of these institutions to finance the transformation I've been talking about. So we should be thinking about strategies of global finance for large-scale 
building of the infrastructure we need for sustainable development. Reasons for optimism. Uh, what we ought to do, we now can do. Uh, but of course, we don't know necessarily whether ought and can will actually generate the will to do. Um, I thought it would be useful, since I now have economists and reporters working for me at Bloomberg, just two statistics to capture how the pandemic has uh, mirrored and exacerbated the inequalities that we came into 2020 with that Jeff described. As we know, uh, 120 million vaccinations or doses of vaccination have occurred um, now already um, in many parts of the world, more than have now have caught COVID-19. 89% of those vaccinations have happened in either the advanced economies or China. And I think only a tiny share, we can barely track the number of the remaining 11% that will have been in the least developed countries. So that's one side of, of the inequality that we're seeing right now in some of these conversations around vaccine nationalism. If you think about how governments have been able to respond to the pandemic, extraordinary responses from governments across the advanced world. Uh, the advanced economies with their roughly billion population have been able to spend an extra $7 trillion in response to COVID. So on top of what they were already planning to do in the way of borrowing um, last year, that's $7,000 per head. Sub-Saharan Africa, slightly larger population, has been able to spend an extra 45 billion. So that's 150th as much, or just over $40 a head, 40 versus 7,000. These numbers aren't a surprise to us, but I thought we should just capture the scale of what we've been talking about in terms of those two sides of the response to this um, health crisis, which of course comes on, on top of the many other crises that the SDGs are trying to address. So enough of me, I'm gonna try not to talk very much more now. Uh, we're gonna have a little bit less time than, than planned. Um, we've already had uh, introductions to our excellent speakers. So let me, let me start with you, uh, Joe Stiglitz, Professor Stiglitz. What's your, what would you say in response to Jeff, but also in thinking about the scale of the problem now, what the, what the pandemic has, has left in its wake and potentially what lies ahead? Well, uh, one needs to think about this both within countries and uh, across countries, as you pointed out. Uh, uh, the uh, developing countries, emerging markets, uh, can't sustain the kind of uh, uh, spending that the United States has or uh, Europe. The United States, as you mentioned, has spent already three, four trillion dollars and, and President Biden is asking for another two trillion dollars. And I think the broad consensus is we need that for the kind of recovery. And it's worked. It's interesting that because the United States has spent so much, the economic downturn in the United States has been uh, much more limited, about 3%. Uh, on the other hand, uh, because Europe has not spent as much, it's had a much more serious economic downturn. But then you compare that with LDCs and emerging markets that can't spend anything. 
Some of them had a very severe downturn, some 12%, others 8%, but really very severe. And that means enormous increases in uh, poverty uh, in these countries. Uh, one of the interesting aspects of the response in the United States is an awareness of how, as you, uh, you said, the disease is both uh, exposed and exacerbated the inequalities. And the positive aspect of, of the Biden uh, uh, proposals is actually go directly to that, uh, to that inequality. Uh, part of what he had proposed is, for instance, a raise in the minimum wage. That was defeated yesterday uh, in, in Congress. So that won't be part of it. But there is a broad support, for instance, in uh, for child, uh, child tax credits, uh, support for children, uh, so strong that it would have a major effect in reducing uh, poverty among children, which has been a scourge uh, in the United States. So by calling attention to the inequalities the pandemic may have had, at least under the President Biden, uh, a very positive uh, response uh, throughout the country in engendering support for uh, a set of policies that will, I think, uh, begin to address America's great inequalities. And Petra uh, Kiva Brooks, if I turn to you, you're sitting in the International Monetary Fund, you're thinking about these issues. Um, how do you see uh, the impact today on developing countries, but also potentially what impact are we, we obviously, we know there's been a big cost, but how much if this is a reversal, uh, a lost decade potentially, um, as opposed to just a, just a halting, you know, what, how la lasting do you think the impact could be? So, what we've seen so far is uh, indeed a, it was a massive collapse of output last year. And uh, even though we've upgraded our uh, forecast a bit, we're still talking about situation that is less dire than we previously thought with global growth at about uh, minus uh, 3.5 uh, last year. But it's really when we're looking at the recoveries that we see that divergence uh, that was already mentioned. So if we look at the output losses uh, measured as what the level of uh, output uh, would have been without the crisis, what we had previously forecasted and comparing it to what we are uh, pr projecting now, uh, by the end of 2022, for the world as a whole, we are talking about a difference of about 3.5%. Now, for advanced economies, it's about two and a half. And for emerging and developing economies, it's about four and a half. But even with those within that four and a half for the uh, emerging and developing countries, there's enormous variation. So. For Latin America, we're talking of the order of uh, minus seven, South Saharan Africa, six and a half, seven. Uh, Asia, actually excluding China, is also a very, very large number. So, uh, and of course, on the other end of the spectrum, we have China and the US that are only about minus one, again, compared to, to what it would have been. Again, all of this is now projections. So then we think about what are the factors, what is driving that divergence? Uh, and 
two things come to mind and two, two things is what we also see in, in our analysis. One is the uneven access to vaccinations. So what we are, uh, what we are expecting, what is embedded in this forecast is that it, by the summer of this year, a lot of the advanced economies and some emerging markets will have these mass vaccination programs and such, but it's really some of the smaller emerging markets and of course the low income countries where, you know, we're not, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, we're not expecting this to be completed until 22, 23 and even beyond. And the cost of that is just unimaginable. And it's not, you know, uh, apart from the human cost, which is uh, again, uh, mind boggling, the point that we're trying to make is that it's really in everybody's business uh, is everybody's interest to vaccinate everybody because otherwise we have these new strains that make the uh, efficacy of the vaccines also lower and such so health is a global public good in the most literal uh, sense so we estimate again if we were to actually do this to accelerate the vaccination of these uh, programs in these other uh, countries the benefit of that would be uh, if the order of $9 trillion by 2025, and about $4 billion of that would go to the advanced economies and the rest to emerging uh, markets. But I just, before I finish, I wanted to say the second point, which is also very important. The other part of this divergence comes from a different ability to provide policy support, something that uh, Professor Stiglitz already mentioned. And there, again, and what you alluded to earlier, the difference is a staggering. Um, and, and it's not, it's really the low-income countries that had been able to do the least just because of you know their debt levels and access to markets and such but even within emerging markets we've seen very large differences i mean if you compare brazil for example they've been able to provide a lot of support in terms of cash transfers that uh, that actually had even reduced the numbers of extreme poverty uh, and, and which of course would have skyrocketed without that and then you have mexico where it's a completely different picture very little was provided in terms of fiscal support and such and even though Many countries have been able to do um, a lot in both fiscal and monetary policy. There is a real question of whether they'll be able to do that going forward, depending on what financing conditions are in, in, uh, in the world. So again, where we come in here is to make the argument and to, to mobilize resources. And we're doing a lot of that on our uh, own as well, providing emergency assistance to low-income countries uh, we did over a hundred billion dollars uh, altogether in, in uh, emergency and other uh, programs, but also make the case for debt relief, for just creating that space so that those that are most vulnerable could actually also uh, support uh, support their um, their households and firms, and that is what's going to reduce the long-term damage. I'll stop here. And of course, the numbers you're talking about for the loss of GDP, that's overall GDP. And in countries which have growing populations, that's even worse, the impact on any kind of progress with living standards on income per head. That's also much more important for the developing countries. Um, yes. 
Absolutely. And actually what we see is that on current trends, about half of the countries that before were converging towards advanced economies level in the period in the three years 2020 to 2023, 22 would actually be diverging now. So this, this issue is really uh, enormous. So Minister uh, Mutuli Nakube, uh, thank you for, for being with us. You're obviously, you're now uh, have a very distinguished career as an economist, but you're also in the hot seat now trying to implement policy on the ground. So I just wonder um, how, how do you see this and what's the best, when we talk about the possibility for more effective global action, what is the most important thing that you could see from the Biden administration and from more international cooperation? What would really assist um, uh, African countries, the developing world <clears throat> is, is support from the, the Biden administration, obviously through the directly and through the, the various platforms uh, in institutions, be they the World Bank, the IMF, the African Development Bank, or, or all, the, all those important institutions for supporting uh, Africa and the developing um, world. Uh, I think uh, the one issue that has come up is rising debt levels. And I think this is something that uh, Brooks has already mentioned. Uh, that I think uh, assistance from the multilateral institutions to make sure that these countries can, can manage their the, the rising debt levels, uh, you know, in a sustainable way. Um, uh, of course, something has been done through the IMF initiative that is welcome. And I think really the thing to do is to stretch it so that uh, these countries can be able to service their debts uh, in, 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 in future. So that's one. The, the other area is to support countries in accessing the vaccine. I think Jeff, Jeff Sachs may made a very important point and uh, Brooks also has emphasized that, look, we, we are now having a vaccine divide, a vaccine inequality, we have an unequal access to the vaccine. So these developing countries need support uh, from the, the developed countries to access the vaccine and, and, and pay for it. Uh, recently, there's a country, I will not mention it, that accessed the vaccine at about five and a half US dollars uh, per shot. And yet we know that uh, the developed countries are accessing the three US dollars per shot. So already you can see the cost of the vaccine is, is higher for the developing world for emerging markets. And we need this kind of support to, to access the, 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 the vaccine. Uh, maybe also let me comment on some of the areas that Jeff Sachs raised, for instance, that the green economy and the digital economy are providing an opportunity for the developing world as well. It's not all uh, you know, gloom and despair. I, I kind of agree with this. So really initiatives around investing in, in green infrastructure, hydropower, uh, solar energy and so forth are, are critical for, for growing the, 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 these economies. Um, but much needs to be done by these countries themselves, ourselves here on the ground, make sure that there is access to rather with the right policies to support this kind of investment, to, to absorb this kind of, kind of support from the uh, multilateral uh, institutions, from the private sector investor, investors. So, so I agree that this is an opportunity, but global capital is required for, for this, these opportunities to be, to be uh, realized. Finally, on the issue of the digital economy, I must say that most African countries have not done too badly, especially in the areas of uh, mobile banking, generally the, the mobile banking platforms are functional in most uh, African countries even, and even better than actually in developed countries. 
the issue has been accessing, uh, let's say, the, the uh, teaching material. That is the pro problematic part. We are not unable to access teaching material easily for poorer schools, but everyone has a mobile phone. So maybe really it's about uh, making sure that our tech people can get those lessons on mobile phones rather than on, on laptops and so forth. That's really uh, uh, the, the, key, the key here. But, but the, the bottom line is the, the emerging countries need support. Uh, they don't have enough fiscal space. Uh, the access to the vaccine is gonna be difficult. We need uh, support in this regard. Let me stop here for now. Ravi Campbell, we've, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. I'm interested in, in your thoughts. Sure, thanks. Uh, thanks, Stephanie, and, and hi to my friends and colleagues uh, on the panel. Um, so I thought I would step out of the pandemic, so to speak, uh, because uh, everybody has talked about that and enough has been said about that. Uh, uh, but uh, to think about the medium term and uh, beyond the pandemic, so looking ahead, say, 15, 20 years after we come out of this, and I want to do that by looking actually 15, 20 years back from before the pandemic, 2019, 20. So what were the trends in inequality over the last 15, 20 years? Uh, what explains that? And, and are those likely to persist uh, beyond the pandemic, so to speak? And actually, if we look, if we look at uh, the 15, 20 years before the pandemic, uh, there are actually, uh, although there's been massive increase in inequality and so on, which we're all aware of, there are actually uh, uh, some notes of optimism because again, as, as, uh, as many of you know, uh, in, in the Latin American countries, for a period of 15 to 20 years, inequality actually fell. And this was the result of purposive policy uh, in terms of redistribution, in terms of minimum wage and so on. So in other words, policy can indeed turn, uh, turn things around. And I think that, that's an optimistic, optimistic message. Uh, but I think there are grounds for caution as we look ahead in the, in the, last, uh, in the next 15, 20 years again, building on what's been going on in the last, in the, in the previous 15, 20 years. There are really three things that I want to emphasize, many of which have been, have been uh, touched on here. One is, the, one is the sort of massive trend towards labor-saving technology. And I think that is, I mean, we all know about that, and that is a major force, uh, in my mind, uh, leading to, despite all the advantages that Jeff stressed and so on, uh, leading to uh, increases in inequality. And I think there's empirical evidence which, uh, on this thing. But the second is that as you try, as countries try to address these issues, as, as the finance ministers like um, Tuli and so on try to address these issues, uh, they really need, uh, they need government revenue to do this, whether it's to raise education, whether it's to redistribute and so on. And what we find, I think, is because of mobility of capital, mobility of skilled labor, there's a constraint on governments raising revenue. Uh, and in fact, uh, this was not the case 40, 50 years ago. <laughs> about the mobility of capital has in fact put constraints on the government. And as you see what's been happening to statutory, uh, uh, statutory corporate tax rates uh, in, in OECD countries, other countries over the last 15, 20, 15, 20 years. Uh, but the third thing I think is if we, if we do have this national coordination issue on, on the tax and revenue side, then what you need are, are international institutions to manage this coordination. And I think this is a third area where I think we have, we have an issue of going, <clears throat> going forward in the last next 15 to 20 years because I believe that institutions like the World Bank, like the multilateral development banks, uh, really need to come up to speed in terms of cross-national, cross-global, multilateral issues. I mean, they've been very good at, at uh, country-specific investment and country-specific support, which is, of course, they were designed that way. And of course, they're changing, but I think uh, there's, there's, a, there's a major issue there. So let me just say that there are, if we look back uh, 20 years uh, before, before COVID, there are signs of optimism that actually policy can help uh, policy does matter. But looking ahead, there are three notes of caution. One is this technological juggernaut that we're facing. 
Secondly, the mobility of capital and mobility of skilled labor, uh, which, leads, which puts a constraint on government's ability to raise revenues. And thirdly, the weakness of global institutions uh, in, 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 in addressing coordination across, uh, across countries. Thank you. And I, there was, in what you've written recently, I thought there was also the striking thing that you'd noted from some other research about how the nature of the poor has changed to some extent, that, no, that, that there's now the majority of the poorest people in the world are in the middle income countries and not necessarily in the poorest countries. And that in itself poses a challenge to international efforts. Yes, I think I think that's that's a very interesting uh, uh, a very interesting development over again over the last 15, 20 years. The connection between a person being poor and that person's country being poor is now much looser than it was uh, uh, compared to 30, 40, 30, 40 uh, year, years ago, uh, because as 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 the, as the numbers show, uh, 30 years ago, 90 percent of the world's poor lived in low income countries. Today, three quarters of the world's poor live in middle income countries. Of course, the poor haven't moved. <laughs> they've been reclassified, so to speak. And if international agencies keep the old ways of, of classifying countries and, and, uh, uh, and, and designing aid policies on that basis, then they will miss out on the bulk of the world's poor. And I think this is an issue that the international community should be, uh, should be taking on board as well. Well, we should obviously go to we talk last picture about that, but I know that Joe is also going to, uh, given that we started late, he's going to run out of time, uh, maybe a little bit sooner than the, than the rest of us. So let me go to you. Uh, Ravi's taken us into the long term, but I think we probably also need to spend a minute on what Joe Biden could do right now and what what difference he makes to what's possible in the global arena. Um, SDRs is one thing that's been discussed. What do you see right now that could be mark the difference between a Biden world and a Trump world? Oh, there's lots of things. Uh, and, <laughs> but, and for this debate, I should say, but not, not for America necessarily, but for the world. No, no, I, I, I understand. Uh, the special drawing rights are really important. Uh, those are kind of money that uh, the IMF issues uh, that uh, go uh, to the countries in proportion to their quotas. But there are even suggestions that the rich countries who will get a lot of them can redonate them in a trust fund or lend them in a trust fund to help uh, the developing countries. And the head of the IMF has taken a very uh, leadership, a strong leadership role in calling for a $500 billion issuance of SDRs and Trump essentially vetoed it. So I'm hoping that the United States will support it. There's a lot of support in the US Congress right now to expand that number to $2 trillion. And of course, uh, if that happens, and if that has to be ratified by parliaments and congresses in other countries, uh, but that would also make uh, a, a very big uh, difference. Uh, the United States, the Biden administration can also make uh, a difference in the issue of uh, debt relief. Uh, again, the international community has talked about debt relief. At the beginning, they talked only about a stay in payment. That just means that you get more and more indebted. Uh, but uh, there's now more serious talk about debt relief. But the difficulty, the challenge, is to get the private sector involved. And they've been very recalcitrant. And there are uh, uh, the courts in the United States typically give deference to uh, in areas of international policy to the administration. 
and that the administration came out with a strong statement uh, that uh, we recognize uh, the general principles of sovereign immunity, uh, that you can't, that the governments uh, uh, can't be hauled into court in the same way that ordinary individuals can, that we recognize that this is a time where a principle called force majeure, uh, that is, you can sign an agreement, but if events that you could not predict like the pandemic happen, you don't have to fulfill uh, the contract. So this is a time if there ever was one where force majeure is relevant. By recognizing that, that would help motivate, I hope, the private sector to participate uh, in the debt relief. And then finally, um, you know, there are, uh, as Robbie talked about, international institutions and the international rules of the game play an important role, like WTO. Unfortunately, a lot of those rules are designed for the advanced countries. You know, Trump said they were disadvantaged in the United States. We wrote those rules and we wrote them to help our corporations. Uh, redoing some of those rules would help. And uh, uh, one example which combines the long-term and the short-term is uh, recognizing that in the provision of the WTO related to intellectual property, there is a provision called uh, uh, compulsory licenses that allows uh, the use of intellectual property of the advanced countries or of anybody for particularly matters of health. And if uh, the, the issues of therapeutics, uh, uh, tests, and uh, most importantly, vaccines, uh, this is a, a, an area where uh, we need global mobilization of the production capacities uh, just like we have generic medicines in many other areas, we need generic vaccines. We need to make sure that the kind of vaccine divide that's already been described doesn't occur. Petya, uh, if you think about uh, just sort of making a bridge from what Joe Stiglitz is talking about, but also to some of the longer term issues that Ravi has mentioned. Um, do, do you feel that uh, we do have to think a bit differently about uh, our approach to reducing inequality now, uh, not just in response to pandemic, but in response to the way the world has changed over the last few years and some of the, some of the trends we've seen? I would say that the challenge that we had before is now much, much bigger, uh, which would call for uh, even more uh, collaboration and uh, coordinated approach, at least in, in some aspects. Uh, so when it comes to, uh, so one area that, that comes to mind, it was already mentioned, of course, is in terms of the production of vaccines and uh, having the COVAX facility properly funded and such to make that uh, availability um, for uh, for the low income countries as well, and I think that this is where we're hoping that uh, stepped up multilateral uh, cooperation will yield results, and uh, and you know which which I think would be extremely important at this at this stage. 
But the other aspect, uh, which was alluded to earlier, uh, was the in the area of climate, because I we do agree that this is an area of opportunity, it, especially when it comes to green investment and green infrastructure investment, which in our view is an integral part of what the package should look like in terms of solving the climate issues, Invest, green investment, um, raising the price of carbon, and then uh, R&D uh, incentives uh, for to develop new technologies. But that first part, the infrastructure uh, investment, is something that could help in the near term in terms of the recovery across the board, and at the same time have these be uh, benefits in the, in the longer uh, term. The third thing I would mention is that, uh, and we had not talked much about this yet, but uh, the, uh, the crisis has also increased inequalities within countries to, uh, to an enormous extent. And we're talking about access to basic services, to health, to uh, quality education uh, and, and such. And also it has an enormous impact on the labor market. And we see this in both advanced economies and emerging and developing economies. There's been an employment shift. The people who had been affected uh, the most have been the low skilled ones, uh, the women, unlike previous uh, recessions, and also the young. So the type of policies that I think would be needed to uh, overcome or, or to at least to mitigate the impact of these inequalities, I think would require just a shift in thinking in terms of uh, it, what happens with taxes, with uh, having a more progressive uh, taxation about spending on some of these uh, services. So this is again, this is an area where we are we are doing some uh, some work, and uh, we hope to to have more 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 specificity in this uh, in the coming months. But just as I said, the the challenge is enormous. I'll stop can, here. Can I just raise one question? O over the long term, uh, many of the innovations, say in climate change, uh, are going to be uh, very capital intensive, not require a lot of labor. Uh, a lot of uh, other kinds of technological changes uh, are going to be uh, reducing the demand for labor. And there's a, a broad concern that uh, the developing countries are going to be disadvantaged and the disparity between them and the banks countries. Uh, so we'll be getting divergence rather than convergence because basically uh, uh, we will the value of unskilled labor and the value of natural resources in particular like oil and coal uh, uh, is going to go down and uh, that will actually exacerbate existing inequalities and question is do you agree and, and what can you do about it yeah, I mean, Ravi, I think, sorry, but, but Ravi, given the, what you've written, I wonder whether you want to comment on that. I mean, it's the opposite of the globalization that we've had over the last few decades has narrowed, the, until recently, has narrowed the gap between the two. But the earlier period we had in the late 19th century, I think there was a rising divergence from the, from the way that was driving. So are we going to that kind of model and is there any way to offset it? Yeah, no, I think, so let me just say one point to, Joe, uh, uh, to Joe, add to Joe's point, which is that the, the, in, the intersection or the interaction between employer power in labor markets and labor-saving technology is particularly deadly, okay? It's, it, that, uh, that combination 
uh, exacerbates inequality effects of labor-saving technology change. So I think that's that's an important point also to bear in mind, which again has a policy implication uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, uh, support for trade unions and so on. I think that there's that there's that element there's that element uh, uh, to it. So yes, I would I would uh, I would I mean I would I would think of this technological uh, juggernaut as actually affecting affecting everybody. <laughs> Uh, clearly, the, the U.S. and the and, and the U.K. and Europe have seen has seen the first part of it. But if you look at China now, okay, there's a there's a major issue with this with the same thing and the and the whole issue of state-owned enterprises, which is where a lot of the labor is there and so on. And as technical change moves, uh, the Chinese government is very worried about this, and it's coming through throughout Asia. It's now it's now coming through. So I don't think it's a, a anymore. It's going to be a, a a developing versus developed country issue. I think it's going to be a global uh, issue. Mm -hmm. But how you, I mean, you say, I, that, uh, yes, I was, go ahead. Uh, thank, thank you, Stephanie. I uh, guess uh, Joe Stiglitz asked a very good uh, question. It's a good comment. And uh, Ravi has, has responded uh, as well. Uh, I think there are some technologies that um, in fact won't hinder job creation and in fact may promote energy equality. For example, imagine uh, rolling out uh, mini grid systems in rural areas or indeed uh, standalone you know, uh, solar energy you know, units in, in rural areas. And this is happening in, in some parts of Africa. Let's say 500 US dollars per unit, for example, in a village that will power four light bulbs, uh, two USB ports, can charge a phone, uh, students, uh, uh, children can do homework you know, in, in the evenings. Uh, and that doesn't really kill jobs. On the contrary, it just creates you know, uh, uh, energy access, access to education, um, uh, and in fact creates uh, jobs uh, for those who are manufacturing panels and distributing these panels. So, so maybe maybe there are some aspects where which are, are, are pro-job creation, perhaps as opposed to to, to 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 killing jobs. One comment that on on what uh, Brooks um, mentioned regarding um, internal inequality, uh, national inequality that as policymakers, the way we are responding to this is through increased cash transfers. That's what I've been pushing uh, here in Zimbabwe, increasing cash transfers for the vulnerable, because we, we notice that inequality is increasing. But of course, the one has uh, uh, you know, fiscal constraints and so forth. Uh, but this is where, again, we expect uh, development partners to support, and they are supporting right across Africa. So I would say one instrument is cash transfers in dealing with this uh, 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 you know, uh, inequality that is uh, increasing. Thank you. Peter, do you want to respond? Yes, thank you, Stephanie. It's just a very quick reaction that uh, when it comes to the, uh, the uh, whether this is the transition would be job rich or not, uh, what we see is that at least some of the, the new technologies actually require have a more labor intensive than the existing ones. The problem, however, and I think that this is, uh, this is absolutely right, that it's the skill composition which is going to be an issue. So one of the things that you think makes sense is when we, as we undertake this transition to think about to think upfront about the distributional aspects and recycle a lot of the revenues that is going to be collected uh, on on carbon. So we have estimates that basically, you know, in China, if you recycle about one sixth of the revenues collected, uh, then you could compensate the the uh, the bottom two. Um, uh, 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 
deciles of the um, income distribution. And a similar number for the US is about uh, a quarter. So anyway, I just wanted to acknowledge that this is a incredibly important question, policy question that we need to think about. Thanks. We do have quite a few questions. I think Professor Stiglitz is now gone. I was going to ask him a final question, but I think he had said that he would need to leave by, by now. Um, but uh, we have had some questions around climate, as you'd expect. And one of them uh, is, what does uh, unpreparedness for COVID-19 and its devastating effects imply for our response to the next global disaster, climate change? I mean, I would also put it another way is if you look at some environmentalists, I think, have looked at the scale and the pace of government response, the shutting down of entire economies almost on a dime in response to COVID and thought, well, maybe maybe we can aim higher in terms of a government response. When people see the danger, they do impossible things. Uh, Ravi, what do you, uh, well, actually we've got Joe back, so maybe we should take one response from him uh, and then uh, and move to the others. Uh well, I mean, what, what is clear is that we rethought the role of government uh, in response to uh, the, the pandemic. Uh, we always knew that government, uh, we should have known that government is where we turn in times of crisis. Uh, Michael Lewis uh, wrote a very nice book called The Fifth Risk, in which uh, at the beginning of the Trump administration, uh, he wrote that one of the most dangerous things that the Trump administration was doing was uh, uh, weakening our ability to respond to crises. And he described all the risks and all the ways that they were not taking adequate measures. Uh, and uh, it's interesting, uh, two things that he didn't emphasize were things that actually turned out to be important. Uh, he took... He disbanded the White House office on pandemics that dealt with pandemics, and he defunded the Centers for Disease Control, which deals with contagious disease, and particularly that part of the Centers for Disease Control that deals with viruses that jump from animals to humans. So it could not have been a worst targeted uh, uh, weakening of the ability of government. But to put it in a broader historical perspective, for 40 years, there's been an attack on the role of government. You know, Reagan said, you know, uh, the worst thing is, uh, uh, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. It was all this attack on government. And we realized that for our society, we need to balance between market, state, civil society. And we got that out of balance. And one consequence of getting that out of balance was we lost the ability, uh, the commitment to uh, create a more equal society with shared prosperity. And uh, it's not an accident that the 40 years beginning with Reagan and Thatcher are the 40 years where inequalities grew divisions in our society grew, including the divisions uh, on health and income and every other dimension. So, Ravi, I guess going back to what I said, you look at the scale, what, what governments were able to do when they had to, not just the money spending, but the shutting down of economies and activities, much more than environmentalists have ever asked for. Is that inspiring 
or is it just further proof that the rich world is only ever going to act to save itself from problems that are right now? Yeah. So, so, so there's that. Uh, there's that issue. But I, I wanted, to, I wanted to take up what uh, the issue that you that I was going to take up before you before you turn to Joe, uh, uh, Stephanie, which is this business of of of, uh, of of the next crisis, so to speak. Okay. And in some sense, being ready for the next crisis, uh, especially so far as protection of the poor is concerned, even though we don't know where it's going to come, when it's going to come, and what it's going to be. I think that's going to be, I think that's the question, that's the problem that, that faces us. We know there are going to be crises with, uh, and so on, but how do we get ourselves ready for those, especially in terms of protecting the poor? And what I've been arguing for is that actually there are many, many schemes. If you look at the government of India, for example, there are many, many schemes on the ground which have been there actually crisis after crisis and so on. But, they all, but, they, but there's no coordination among those. They, they work against each other. And also funding of those schemes is, a, is an issue when, when the crisis hits. So, so I've argued actually for something analogous to the financial sector assessment program, which what does, what does the financial sector assessment program do in, in the IMF? It, it imagines crises. It says, suppose this sector failed, what will be the knock-on effects on banks and this and that, et cetera? So I'm saying, let us imagine different types of crises, a reasonable, uh, 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 possible crises, and ask the question, what is the impact on the poor and how are the systems currently on the ground likely to address those? And then on the basis of that, uh, propose a reform of the current structure of support for the poor. And the second point is that, in fact, financing is a key issue, as Amtuli and others have, have pointed out. But I think uh, the international community uh, moves too late on this, uh, on this score. The crisis has almost passed before we, before we uh, uh, move to support these things. So I've been, I've been arguing, and again, there are, there are instruments of that type, which is that we have, uh, we, have, uh, we have financing lines which are available the moment that certain triggers are breached. Uh, the moment that triggers are breached, those financing lines, I mean, you've done all the due diligence work beforehand. So the moment the triggers are breached, that those financing, li financing lines uh, allow uh, a finance minister like Amtule to actually uh, support, the, support, the, uh, support the poor. So I think this notion of of, of how to be ready for the next crisis, uh, even though we don't know what it's going to be, I think is is one way to frame the question. Yeah. Amtuli Nakube, do you think you 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 agree? <laughs> You're on mute. Let, let me turn this on. Yes, I, we we have had a, a serious climate shock here in the last two years, in addition to the pandemic, which has just started. Um, uh, last year, they, we, we had a, a cyclone, it, it impacted Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Malawi, and then at the same time, literally a few months later, then there's a drought in another part of this region, especially Zimbabwe. And the way we have responded is really to accelerate our, the construction of dams, as well as a, a investment in irrigation, and, and this is real for us. And for in the rural areas, we've had to drill a lot of balls. It's been a massive undertaking. And it's taken a lot of uh, government re resources. So we have no choice but have had to, to, to respond. Of course, the upside of providing water, uh, uh, whether it's from dams or boreholes, is that you also deal with the health crisis because then you're able to provide clean water as well uh, and so forth. So you're dealing with both making sure that there is, you deal with the, the drought uh, situation and also uh, support the, 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 uh, the health uh, imperative. So, and, and then coming to the cycles, we've spent considerable resources on, on building back better, be it roads, bridges, recycling people in the right areas uh, so that they are not impacted uh, by the cycle the next time around it, it, it comes. And this is a very susceptible part 
of, 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 of the world of our region, uh, the eastern part of Zimbabwe, the border of Mozambique, and the whole of uh, a part of Mozambique, in fact. Uh, um, so, so, so recycling people in the right areas uh, that are less prone to, to negative impact of the cyclone is critical. So we're spending resources uh, here, we've responded. And again, we need quite a bit of support from the international community in this regard, from development partners, uh, and they, they've been re re responding. But I must say that their response has shied away from investment in critical infrastructure. It's more the sort of so uh, softer social issues, some cash transfers, but investment in the right type of infrastructure is key to, to responding to climate change. I uh, thank you. Petya Brooks, um, you talked about this as a crucial, you know, this is something that we'll, it, we need to be continued to work on and to continue to think of mechanisms. Do you think there is a there is a criticism there that we're not looking enough at the infrastructure, the physical investment piece of this in the approach? Well, let, let me make uh, two point, points on this and uh, perhaps going to the question that you asked earlier in terms of uh, how we see also a future crisis. And, you know, it's hard to look at a silver lining in the midst of a pandemic. But if there is one, I think there are signs that attitudes towards um, uh, climate issues and also towards uh, government provision of services and including also the, the level of taxation and the type of taxation are changing as a result of the, uh, of the, of the current pandemic. And the second point to make on this is that just in terms of preparedness for the next crisis, we have seen uh, really large increases in debt. Uh, across the board, but also in low-income countries and in emerging markets. So when we think about a future crisis, it's just it's it. We need to be aware that the starting point, unless those levels are reversed, uh, would be much much weaker. Uh, so so this reinforces our call for resolving debt issues, including through. Uh, early debt restructuring and uh, and 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 such. Well, now, when it comes to the uh, infrastructure, I'll just go back to to what I said earlier. I think we we do see the logic of of investing in that infrastructure uh, now or in the very near future. Um, you know, of course, the priority is to end the health crisis, but as soon as it's possible, investing in in uh, in in green infrastructure and more generally in infrastructure that that would pay the dividends going forward is something that uh, makes uh, a lot of sense. I'm interested if we go just embedded in what both uh, Ravi and, and Joe have said about technological change is actually something that would be at odds with how we think about development often. If we are basic, if we think that the predominant technological change that we're looking at going down the track is actually going to increase inequality between countries and potentially within countries as well, and that maybe trying to lean against that is something we might want to do, that seems very at odds with a lot of the strategies we have for supporting developing countries and the kind of path to development that we still talk about. I don't know whether either of you wants to, I mean, what's the, what's the direct implication for development policy or for domestic policy of taking seriously that concern? Well, I think there are, there are a number of, of, of things. One of them, I think, uh, Ravi, uh, or you mentioned already, uh, leaning against uh, these trends, uh, recognizing that they're there, and thinking about uh, 
some of the implications. So Robbie mentioned one explicitly that some of the changes in technology are leading to more market power for corporations, less uh, market power, uh, bargaining power for workers. Uh, another correlated one is that uh, uh, tax revenues are increasingly uh, going to the big tech companies and uh, they are extracting profits, uh, uh, money out of uh, developing countries, emerging markets and other advanced countries. So resolving the issue of digital taxation, resolving the issue of multinational corporations who have used globalization to avoid or evade taxes is absolutely uh, uh, critical. Um, I think that uh, one of the important uh, um, global public goods is global knowledge. And uh, the patterns of um, innovation have been driven by the advanced countries. And uh, they worry about high wages. Uh, but that's not the problem in developing countries and emerging markets. So it might be uh, uh, a good idea for the international community to get together and, and say, let's, let's try to think about how we change the steer, the direction of innovation in a counter way, in ways that uh, save our planet, save uh, uh uh, but uh, don't save labor, uh, save capital, which is for the developing country, the scarce resource. I mean, Petya Brooks, the IMF has talk, focused a lot more on inequality in recent years, but I'm not sure they've quite taken that further step that, that Joe is suggesting. How, how do you respond to what he's saying in terms of what he should be encouraging? You're right, Stephanie. We have been thinking a lot about inequality because, uh, you know, through the lessons of history, we've also realized that that is a key component of thinking about, about macro stability, which is our uh, primary mandate uh, and such. And we are also aware, of course, that we have our uh, sister institution, the World Bank, and also a lot of the development banks are looking at more the development uh, issues. But the two of course, macro stability and development are so interconnected. And, and now also with the issue of climate, which is kind of an umbrella uh, across all of this, we've, we've also uh, stepped into that area as well. Um, I think what I could say is that these are, of course, the right questions. And I think uh, we'll, we'll take them very seriously in terms of uh, thinking about them. I don't think I have any answer to offer at this stage. Oh, well, that means he's definitely onto something if you give such a diplomatic answer uh, that we should be. Uh, um, but Ravi, do you think? Yes. So I, uh, I, I think this is again. So if we think of this, uh, we can first of all just uh, uh, for analysis think of the technological shock as being exogenous to start with, and think of it as being essentially it's a demand side shock on on, on in, in labor markets. It's increasing the demand for skilled labor, depressing the demand for basic labor. Just think of it in, in those in those terms. Uh, and that's what's leading to the increasing inequality in wages and, and so on and so forth. So one response to that is to work on the supply side and you sort of uh, in, uh, create the increase in skilled labor and so on. It's a very clear policy thing. And in fact, 
uh, it, it's argued that actually a significant portion of the, lat of the Latin American decline in inequality when it, when it happened was because of conditional cash transfers conditioned on secondary school education and so on and so forth. So the supply side was working well. So that's one thing on the supply side. The second would be uh, let it play through uh, uh, and, and, and redistribute after the event. And again, Latin America, they did that as well. And the whole discussion of universal basic income and so on and so forth, I think fits into that, into that part of the thing. Uh, those two things I think we, we, we can discuss and there's a lot of literature and a lot of analysis on that. But there's a third one which Joe touched on and which the late Tony Atkinson uh, emphasized a lot is why should we take the trend of technology as given? Uh, uh, why should we not uh, bring, bring in uh, state and state private sector partnerships as, as Joe said to steer technology in a particular direction? And when I, when, I, when I make this point in, in audiences, people say, oh, you know, there you go, you're trying to canoot-like, trying to push the, push the tide back of technology. There's nothing we can do. It's just coming, coming at us and we have to uh, adapt to it and so on. Uh, but it seems to me, you know, and again, Joe has made this point many times, when the government wanted to, it did change, change the direction of technology. I mean, the internet is what it is because the government took uh, agricultural, uh, uh, agricultural yields and so on improved. Uh, because Norman Borlaug was in the field in, in, in Mexico, sent there by, by public sector and foundation entities to actually change the direction of technology. So in a sense, I think we should, we should have some amount of confidence that a public-private public partnership can in fact make new technology more labor using, uh, as, uh, as, as Joe said. Now, if you ask me what exactly those things are, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't tell you, uh, but, but on the other hand, I think this is the direction, rather than accepting the steer. And this was a point that Tony Atkinson made very strongly uh, in, in, his, in his last book, uh, Inequality, What to Do About It. And Bill Gates has actually sometimes made, made a similar point, so it's not just from, from academics. Yeah. Um, Mtulia Nakube, if you're, you talked about some of the policies that you really want to achieve. I sort of think many of the prescriptions, the, the, the things that investors are saying Zimbabwe, other countries should do, uh, they still saying many of the same things they said a few years ago, you know, you must get government off the back of business, you must deregulate and have a, a more a less into less intervention in markets. Um, how do you, how do you square those kind of demands with the kind of conversation we're having with you as an economist it's it's you have to combine both. Uh, uh, absolutely, we have to combine both uh, government has a role especially in these uh, you know, turbulent times, there's no question about that. But also recognize that the private sector is a key partner. So really uh, working together the private sector is, is the way to go. Uh, for example, just simply in this uh, issue of, of acquisition of the vaccine in, in Zimbabwe, for example, in fact, today I launched a private sector initiative for what it's worth uh, to raise additional resources from the private sector. To, support, to complement what government is already doing. And I'm just giving this, this one example. Uh, Ravi, in response to an issue raised by uh, uh, Joe Stiglitz, uh, that we need government, and again, to work together with the private sector in driving the technological uh, trend. What I'm noticing in Africa is that Africa is not short of the tech entrepreneurs, especially in the ICT sector. What's missing? is the entrepreneurship ecosystems to support these entrepreneurs. And that's where government is needed to support these. Uh, but also we need uh, uh, the corporate sector to support them. You can imagine if you're in, in Silicon Valley and you are, you are the inventor of Zoom, 
there will be enough angel investors to invest in your product. I can assure you, some guy the, on a corner of Zimbabwe is also just invented his, his Zoom platform, equivalent platform, but does not have the kind of support in terms of capital, venture capital to support that initiative. Or in Kenya, for example. So these entrepreneurship ecosystems require both government and the private sector to work together to make things happen and close this uh, tech divide. We do have a technology, a, you know, potential um, entrepreneurs in Africa, uh, but they just need this, this support. Uh, and clearly in terms of crisis like this, both government and the private sector are, are needed. There's uh, Joe mentioned the tax, digital taxation. We're going to run out of time in a minute, but I'm interested. You know, the, the OECD and the G20 is def, is closer to an agreement on that than it has been in the past. I, when I talk to them, they insist it's really very close. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that's necessarily going to involve a big global redistribution of revenues. It's going to involve quite a lot of rich countries getting more revenues off America. Um, and dividing the pie in a slightly different way. I mean, Joe, do you think that, is it actually a game changer if you just spread those revenues across more rich countries? Or is there a way to do this? How would you do that better? Yeah, now, uh, what they've been discussing uh, has been disappointing uh, because it is mostly uh, uh, moving a little money around, uh, changing the rules a little bit. Uh, this applies not only to digital taxation, but more broadly to multinational uh, taxation. Um, in the area of digital taxation, uh, the one thing they can do that will make a difference is uh, make sure that uh, the information that people, that the Google tech giants get uh, from dealing with the, uh, those in developing countries and emerging markets the value of that information is appropriated by the countries. So, you know, they say uh, the new oil is data. And where is most of the data? It's being generated where most of the people are and where are most of the people that are in uh, developing countries and emerging markets. So to that extent, uh, there's a lot more revenue if you recognize the value of data uh, that you ought to be going to the developing countries and emerging markets. Uh, more, more broadly, uh, the, 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 the uh, issue in multinational uh, corporations is moving away from what is called the transfer price system uh, to uh, what is called the formulaic system, where the basic principle is that where the production occurs, they ought to get a significant amount of, that's where you, a lot of the profits can be attributed. And another important part of the agenda is uh, a minimum tax, a minimum corporate income tax. The multinationals have engaged in a race to the, have encouraged the countries to engage in a race to the bottom and lower the tax rates. So that has been discussed in the OECD framework, but they're talking about a 12.5% minimum tax rate. So that's a lowering down so that people get, everybody gets less and the corporations get more. That was defeating the whole purpose of this uh, original initiative 
to make sure corporations were paying their their fair share. So uh, I'm in uh, a member of it. What's called the Independent Commission on Reform of the International Multinational uh, Tax System, and we've called for a 25% uh, uh, minimum corporate income tax across countries for multinationals. There's one question which uh, we're going to we're going to close in a minute, but the, of, of, there's been several questions from from the audience. We have a big audience, but it's a question which is a is a question I think that probably students ask more than other people. And the question is, should democracy play a role in deciding a big role in deciding how developed countries should aid the less developed world, or should the decision be with world leaders? Now. You know, in the UK, this is a very live issue because the government, having made a big commitment on its development uh, target, had aid uh, target for how much it was going to give in development aid, has uh, reduced, sort of broken that commitment. And by all accounts, it's a very popular thing to have done. People are turning inward and people are looking to themselves. Um, well, since, since I'm Joe's student, I let him answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard question. I guess my feeling is that governments uh, in a democracy have to work with their citizens and uh, persuade them that it's in everybody's interest to have this kind of shared prosperity. We understand about shared prosperity within our country, and we're not going to have the same kind of shared prosperity across borders. But you know, just to bring it back to the pandemic uh, that we've been, you know, began the conversation with, uh, it was pointed out we're we're not going to be free from this disease until the whole world is free. As long as it's going around, there will be mutations that have the risk of coming back and biting us, and that's why you know you think about it, it's so foolish that the banks countries don't spend a few billions of dollars to save what would be in the trillions of dollars from the economic uh, downturn. Uh, the second thing is we aren't, aren't going to have a really strong economic recovery until there's a global recovery. We have a globally integrated economy and we're not going to have a strong global economic recovery until there's basically a recovery in developing countries and emerging markets. They've, in aggregate, have played an important role in the recovery from the 2008 crisis. Uh, China played a particularly large role, but China is not playing the same role in this pandemic. Its growth is much more muted. They've gone much more inward looking. So their, their trade surplus has increased. So it, in that context, it's even more important. It's almost uh, in our own self-interest to help uh, the emerging markets and developing countries, both with respect to the economy and with respect to uh, health. And I think our leaders have to make that case uh, much more forcefully and, and openly. What a great discussion. Thank you to the panel. We are delighted to have hosted the Global Inequalities Panel at the Warwick Economic Summit 2021, and we hope that you enjoyed this episode of the WestPod.
Share your thoughts on this topic by using the hashtag WestPod on our social media, like Twitter and Facebook, to keep the discussion going. Next week, we will be hearing from John Ridding, the CEO of the Financial Times. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to challenging perspectives on the next episode of the WestPod. The Warwick Economic Summit. The Warwick Economic Summit. Warwick Economic Summit.